Gina Della from Pella through June 30th at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Choose 40% off installation or six-year no-interest financing. Get details now at PellaWI.com slash radio or 855-PELLA-WI. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So glad to have you with us. Our lead-off topic. This is one of those stories that, I, I swear, again, it makes my head explode. That when we have this obsession with the woke culture and hypersensitivity that just combines to make us stupid and to st- sort of stand in the way uh, of education, right? As I said a couple minutes ago, the final Jeopardy answer is the Industrial Revolution. What is the question? The question is, what was it? that led to America's development as a major power in the world? And the answer is the Industrial Revolution. What was the Industrial Revolution? Well, the Industrial Revolution was, it it started late 1700s and then moved into the 1800s. It's where we moved as a country from, again, just stuff that was produced solely by manpower into automated devices and machinery. And what we found is we could develop machines that could do the work that an individual could do in a fraction of the time. And it led to mass production and it led to the growth of factories and it led to the huge amounts of production and things of the like. That that was a significant issue and a significant situation. If you look up the Industrial Revolution, one of the first Elements And one of the very first things that were designed there during the Industrial Revolution was something called the cotton gin. The cotton gin was developed by Eli Whitney in uh, about the 1790-something. I think he um, ended up patenting it in, in 1807. But the cotton gin provided a way. It was a machine that would separate seeds from cotton. If you have ever seen raw cotton. Raw cotton um, has, well, it, it's what we would see as the typical cotton material, but there's all sorts of seeds in it, and the seeds need to be separated from the raw cotton. Before the cotton gin was developed, um, you would have to have a person, man or a woman, would sit down and you, they would estimate that it would take them a day to hand pick all the seeds out of about a pound of cotton. All right. The cotton gin was essentially this machine that you it started out with just like hand cranks. But you took the the cotton and you fed it into this machine and you cranked it. And what happened is the the cotton gin that meant it actually meant like cotton engine. But the cotton gin would separate the, the cotton from the seeds. It would pull the seeds out. And once they developed the cotton gin, what they found was that instead of one person producing like a a pound of cotton that you could then use for textiles and things like that, you could produce like 50 pounds in a day. So this was a huge, huge development. All right. Now, why are we talking about the cotton gin and the Industrial Revolution? Well, it's because a middle school in Spokane, Washington, was talking about the cotton gin and the Industrial Revolution a little while ago. Here's the deal. that They are teaching 
the Industrial Revolution. They are teaching the development. And again, the cotton gin was one of the first machines, not necessarily the first, but it was one of the first machines that like um, again, gave you the indication of the start of the Industrial Revolution. So there is a teacher in a middle school class, and they're teaching the Industrial Revolution. And the teacher is trying to show the kids the effect of and how significant the cotton gin was. And one of the very first industries that really took off with the Industrial Revolution was the textile industry, and that was because of the cotton gin. So here, here is the example. The teacher, and this is a middle school class, she brings a box of raw cotton into the classroom. And she's trying to talk about how significant this 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 item was, this cotton gin, and how it just by using automation, you didn't use as many people. So what she does is she brings in all this raw cotton and she gives some of the raw cotton to each of the students in the, the classroom. So she says, OK, here, here's what we're going to do. I'm trying to demonstrate this. We're going to do a fun activity. So she takes a batch of, of raw cotton and she gives a, a batch to each of the kids, all the different kids in the classroom. And she's trying to demonstrate, I mean, how difficult it was to pull all the seeds out of the raw cotton. So she says, look, this is the activity. What I want to do is I'm going to give you each a chunk of this raw cotton, and we're, we're going to try to clean it. And I want to see you know, how long it takes and who can clean it, who could clean it the fastest. So she, she gives this all to the different kids, and all the kids clean the cotton. Well, maybe you see where this story is going. Two of the children are, are black, and it's, it's not like they are the only two that are given the cotton. All the kids are given the cotton. So two of the kids are black, and they are given the cotton. They are um, sisters, as a matter of fact. So they, they sit there, and they, they clean the cotton. And afterwards, they, they go and they complain to their mother. They say, Mom, you know, they, they, they made us clean cotton in, in the classrooms. And, and this, this activity made us feel embarrassed and angry uh, about, about this. And so they, they complain to the mother. So the mother, you know, calls up and, and the mother complains to the school. And the mother says, what are you doing, you know, making, you know, making my, my children, you know, clean cotton? And the assistant principal says, well, I'm going to investigate this. And then they find out, no, this was a, it was part of the lesson plan. They gave all the kids in the classroom cotton. And the purpose was to demonstrate uh, again, how difficult and time-consuming this activity was so they could appreciate the significance of the cotton gin and how that played a role in the Industrial Revolution. All right, the mother says, well, I, I'm outraged about this. I, I mean, this is this is just absolutely terrible. How dare you have my kids picking cotton? And the assistant principal says, well, this is part of the lesson, and if you would feel more comfortable, I guess we could remove your kids from the classroom, you know, when, when we're, we're teaching this and using this example. And then the mother says, what do you mean? You're, you want, you're going to segregate my children? You're, you're intending to segregate our children? I am, I am, I'm shocked, and I'm pulling my kids out of that school. And then she goes, not being satisfied with the reaction of the, the school, she's then gone public. She says, I, my, my concerns were falling upon deaf ears. I know there was not going to be any concern, no action on this. I had to go to the district. I had to try to get some answers. I mean, I want, I mean, I want there to be accountability. I want the social studies teacher. I want school administrators to be disciplined. I want a formal apology from the 
city school district. I'm not sending my kids back until we get it. I need my daughters to know that going back to school is a safe environment. I need them to know that they can speak up. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. Should the school district be apologizing for this lesson plan? For the teacher using a visual aid to demonstrate how tough it is to pick cotton, how long it takes to pick cotton, and giving each of the kids in the classroom, not just these two children, but all the kids in the classroom, you know, some of the raw cotton and saying, let's see who can, how long it takes, you know, let's see who can pick this the fastest. Get the seeds out. 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Obviously, I, I look at this and I, I normally schools, you know, cave in when they get these sort of complaints. Oh, my gosh, we're being accused of being racist. Oh, my gosh, we're accused of being, you know, of, of offending the, these children and things like that. I'm sorry. You, you, you look at this and this isn't racism. This is an effort to teach in this case, as part of a social studies curriculum to teach the Industrial Revolution. So far, the school is not apologizing. They're getting some bad press. Not from me. What do you think? We discuss. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. That's the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I swear stuff like this makes my head explode. We now can't even, again, teach basic elements of the Industrial Revolution using, in this case, what I think is a great example. One of the leading elements on the forefront of the Industrial Revolution, 1800, was Eli Whitney's cotton gin that removes seeds of cotton from, like, the, the cotton product that we know that's used to, like, make our shirts and pants and things like that. Okay, removing seeds is a tedious sort of job, and this particular cotton gin um, said you could essentially do 50 pounds in a day, where before that you could maybe do a pound. So the teacher's lesson is, here's raw cotton. Hey, class, I'm giving you each some raw cotton. Let, let's let's pick the seeds out of the cotton. See how hard it is. See who can do it the fastest. And one of the mothers gets all upset because two of her two children, who are black, that she's offended. That This is, how dare you make my children pick cotton? And then she goes to the school. And in this case, she gets no satisfaction because the school says, well, no, it's it's part of the lesson. Now, if they don't want to be part of the lesson, you know, I mean, we, we, can, we can move them out of the class, but we're not changing the teaching. Move them out of the class. You're talking about segregating them. How can you do that? 855-616-1620. I think the school has nothing to apologize for. Chris in West Bend. Chris, you're on WTMJ. I think it's absolutely ridiculous. But, I mean, they need to know the concept, even though, I mean, they, if they were they're getting to the point where they were talking about, about slaves and stuff like that, I mean, they need to know about that. And so many young schools don't teach certain concepts like this. Because of, um, then they claim that you're being discriminatory and stuff like that. Well, you're not being discriminatory. People need to, these kids need to learn. Well, right. What this is. Yeah, Chris, I'm sorry, we got a bad cell phone connection, but I, but yeah, yeah right, I, it's right, it's not being discriminatory. It's not like she's singling out, for example, the, the two black children, or maybe there's more black children in the class, I don't know, but it's not like she's singling out these kids for, to, for the demonstration. Here, you two pick the cotton. No, she's, she's giving the cotton to everybody in the class. The idea is to teach them, you know, how, 
how life changed for people who were working in the South when they had to, you know, pick cotton. And by the way, it wasn't just slaves that picked cotton. I mean, that this what the, the South's industry was based on. Uh, again, cotton was one of the, the major crops that was grown in the South. So it wasn't just slaves. Now, obviously, slaves pick cotton, too, but farmers pick cotton. All sorts of people picked cotton. But that wasn't the purpose. Th- this wasn't this wasn't a lesson about slavery. This was a lesson about here's how the Industrial Revolution and the development of Eli Whitney's cotton gin changed the production of cotton. Now, you, you can go on from that. And there's a lot of people who believed that the cotton gin led to an increase in, in slavery because it, it allowed how you could you know process, you could make more cotton and things like that. And, and, and that may or may not be the, the case, but that's a discussion for another day. They weren't talking about it in the context of slavery they were talking about it in the context of you know here's what these machines did and boy you know we'll show you an example of this jeff this is getting ridiculous we need schools political leaders communities and community leaders to fight against these constant uprisings it ends up being an effort to erase american history wrong or right we need to let our students learn about our past if we give in soon we will have no history to talk about i agree with that but i, I would go an extra step the, this isn't even this shouldn't even be a controversial concept. I mean, the Industrial Revolution is something that in, in any sort of social studies or American history class you, you want to teach. Gee, how did we go from, you know, A to B? Well, we went from A through B to from A to B through, again, automation and the development of machines. And that led to the growth of cities and factories. And it changed the southern economy and all that sort of stuff. This, this is just a demonstration project where the kids can go, man, I, I wouldn't want to be pulling seeds out of cotton. This would be a miserable thing. Oh, this machine made it easier. Jeff, it's a classroom experiment. That That's all. Um, yes, Jeff, necessity is the mother invention. We can create machines to fix anything. Um, yes, um, Jeff, this is a very clever way to make history come alive. I believe the complaint has no basis and apologies are not necessary. Yeah, I think that's actually the texture hits it. That's, I think, a, a good way to to look at it. It's a way to make history come alive. Here's how hard it was to pick cotton. You had industrial communities, entire states and the whole regions. Livelihood was based on picking cotton, but it was a slow, tedious process. Here's why. You try pulling all those seeds out of the, this this raw cotton. Well, now there's a machine that gets this out quickly. It, it's it's a great way the students can see this. And again, it, it's not the context of slavery a, at all. Oh my goodness, my kids were made to pick cotton. Well, all the kids were shown, were given a piece of cotton and told to pick it because they wanted to understand at least the purpose of the lesson was to teach them again how the cotton gin worked debbie in brookfield debbie you're in wtmj debbie yeah jeff i I completely disagree um i think this is culturally insensitive there's no reason (laughs) the cotton gin the invention of the cotton gin prolonged slavery and it was on its way out until that invention and having these two students whose ancestors were part of that slavery well you don't know that no but i'm pretty certain and you know if if the other kids in the classroom had that type of ancestral uh, uh, lineage. So we, we shouldn't um, we shouldn't teach the no we shouldn't teach the cotton gin. Eli Whitney gets we we don't we don't no, even talk about that. 
You know how I was taught about the cotton gin way, way back when? Was that when the cotton gin was invented, it prolonged slavery. Because slavery was dying out in the United States. And yes, I understand that not all just slaves picked the cotton, but that was the vast majority of it. Well, well, I know that, that, that I don't think that's true. But again, but that that's a lesson for another it's day. If you, want, if you want, if you want, well, yeah, okay, Debbie, I, I understand. You, you you can make up with stuff that you want as well. But here's my question: I'm not making anything uh, okay, up. Okay, well, I, I, look, I don't doubt. Well, you 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 state that it's mostly slaves or almost exclusively slaves that pick cotton. I mean, everybody else picked cotton in the South as well. I did not well. say that. You s- I did not say no. that. But I did that the invention of the cotton gin prolonged slavery in this country because cotton growth was not a profitable thing because of the labor. Well, I understand that, Debbie, and that's a lesson for another day. That's the lesson for, again, the slavery aspect of it. They're teaching the Industrial Revolution. It all ties in together. Well, but then you then you teach okay, but then you teach that you teach that as the follow up. If you want to teach a section on slavery and and how did slavery thrive in this country, that that that's all fine. But that means that you're you're not going to allow a demonstration to show how the cotton gin made the production of textiles more effective. I, I don't understand the connection. Not without the context. Well, not without the context. I'm sorry, but you need that context in there because. We wouldn't have a cotton industry if it wasn't for slavery. Well, thank Debbie. I, I mean, again, this is this is the, this woke culture, and it's it's the obsessiveness with it. Yes, I I understand, and I don't disagree with you that. And I, that's why I said earlier the the mass production of cotton made slavery more profitable. I, I understand that, and if you want to teach that in the slavery section, that that's fine. But this was not a, t- a lesson about slavery. This was a lesson about the machines and how we became more industrialized. Now, I understand there's people who, who have an obsession with, with this and can't separate the various concepts, and, and you are one of those people, I guess, and, and that's fine. In this case, I just don't see it. And the, the idea that now, okay, this is 1800, it's cotton gin, that 200 plus years later, you can't, again, have people given raw cotton and told to separate the seeds because it's going to uh, awake some, I, I, I don't know, you know, you, you suggested, well, maybe their ancestors pick cotton. I don't know that. And you don't know that one way or the other. But it's not like you're asking these children to do anything different than any of the other kids in the classroom are. And by the way, like I say, I don't mind if you want to teach a slavery lesson, you know, and, and the role that the cotton gin or the Industrial Revolution had in slavery, I don't have a problem if you want to teach that at some point in time, but that's not what the purpose of this particular lesson was. 855-616-1620. Um, Jeff, well, um, Jeff, please cancel Debbie. She loves canceling. Well, it's not a question. I mean, I understand that idea. Jeff, Debbie is a perfect, perfect example. Noon is, as soon as you mentioned the Industrial Revolution, that workers, that wokesters would play the race card based on the Southern cotton economy. Um, Jeff, why can't they teach about a different machine? I don't think this was the best choice. Well, they, they can teach about different machines. The cotton gin was was one of the first developments in the Industrial Revolution, and it was one of, again, the earliest, and it was probably one of the most significant. Um, let's see. Um, and again, I understand there's people who want to be offended by this. Um, 
Jeff, I have a doctorate in early U.S. history. Uh, the last phone call was one of the most off-the-truth comments I have ever heard. Don't know where she learned U.S. history. And again, I assume that's the question of, was it only slaves that picked cotton? I mean, the, the industrial, look, the, the whole climate of the South was based on picking cotton. But that's not the issue. If you want to teach slavery, teach slavery. If you want to teach why slavery become profitable, do it. But this idea that oh, we have to apologize in 2021 for as a classroom experiment allowing kids to see how difficult it was to pick cotton so they can understand why the cotton gin was so significant to the southern economy. I'm sorry, I'm I'm not willing to cancel that. And at least at this point in time, the school district isn't willing to cancel it either. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. I know there's some people out there who have no problem at all with the fact that the government right now is subsidizing adults not to work. And, and that's I, but beyond Tony Evers, I don't know that there's anybody who seriously believes that that's not the case. Right now, we have people who are unemployed who are collecting their state unemployment and they're getting a $300 extra stipend from the federal government. So the, the bottom line is they make more money if you're if you're working at a job that would pay about 15 bucks an hour right now. If you get the average amount that somebody on unemployment gets in Wisconsin, plus the 300 bucks, you, you make more money by sitting at home. Tony Evers says, well, no, I, I don't think that that's suppressing the labor force, at which point, I mean, I sent out a text yesterday or a tweet yesterday. I mean, it makes me wonder if, if marijuana is already legal in Wisconsin because I don't understand how you can how you can even argue the, the point. Of course, for some people – People who, again, if they were working, were going to be working at jobs that pay 12 or 13 or 14 or $15 an hour. If they can make more by not going to work, of course they're not going to go to work. And that was one of the things we discussed yesterday has led to a, a huge spike in the teenage hiring rate. I mean, this year, the number of kids ages 16 to 19, it, it, it's like 32%. It's the highest since 2008. And it's because a lot of businesses that need the seasonal labor they're okay if you can't get adults that are going to work because the government is subsidizing them to stay home at least until the benefits end in September what's happening is you have the employers that are are paying the kids and and that's all well and good but the big picture is you know what happens as time goes on so here's the story and I I sent a link to it out on Twitter this morning Um, it's call and you can follow me on Twitter it's at Jeff Wagner 620 but the story highlights what I describe as unintended but foreseeable consequences. All right, so McDonald's corporate announced that they are going to be upping the minimum wage for people who work at McDonald's corporate um, restaurants. And that's really only a fraction of the McDonald's. Most McDonald's are owned by individual franchisees, but there are you know, a couple um, hundred, you know, corporate restaurants that are owned by the McDonald's Corporation across the country. And, you know, they announced that, hey, they've got this plan to, you know, increase the wages and their goal is to, to get it up to 15 bucks an hour over a period of time. And they also said that, hey, we're, we're hoping to hire thousands more employees. OK, well, that, that's all well and good. Well, last week, the current CEO of McDonald's um, was at this this high tech kind of conference. And he said, well, yeah, we're, we're doing this, but everybody should know that we are currently testing an automated voice recognition based drive through ordering system at 10 of our Chicago locations. 
And the guy said, what we found is that this this artificial intelligence has about an 85% accuracy rate with filling orders. And they estimate that workers are only going to have to step in for approximately one in five orders. Here's what he says. He says, there's a big leap from going to 10 restaurants in Chicago to 14,000 restaurants across the U.S. But um, do I think five years from now you're going to see a voice in the drive through I do. Don't think it's going to happen overnight, but it is going to happen. So in other words, what the CEO is saying is, look, as our labor costs go up, we are starting to look at other alternatives. And and, and the technology is there for us to automate. So if we have to pay an individual worker or a bunch of workers, if we've got to pay them 15 or $16 an hour, there is an incentive for us to try to automate just like there was an incentive to try to, you know, develop the cotton gin, for example, back in 1800. So the CEO is saying, look, here, here's the deal. We're increasing wages, but everybody needs to know we're moving more towards automation. And sooner or later, that's going to mean fewer jobs. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is automation inevitable? Are we going to now just just think of all the different things that have happened over the last, you know, just decade, for example. You know, it used to be if you wanted to get cash for a weekend or whatever, you would go into the bank, you would write out a check, you would show your ID, you would see the teller, they would give you cash. Now, how many people go into a bank anymore, see the teller and get cash? Well, maybe a few, but most people go to the ATM machine and, you know, you put in your card, you put in the numbers, you get cash back. They don't need as many tellers. Automation is replacing that job. Look at what's going on in supermarkets nowadays, where at least in many supermarkets, instead of having uh, checkout lines, that are maybe you got 10 checkout lines and they're all staffed on a busy Saturday morning with people with checkers. How many supermarkets do you go into now that have a couple lines that still have checkers in them? But otherwise, it's those self-service lines where you go up and you put your card in and you scan the things yourself. They don't need the people. And maybe you've got one person that's standing looking at four or five of the kiosks, but they're you don't need those checkers to do it. Our number, 855-616-1620. For everybody who's talking about, well, we've got to pay more and more money to people for the jobs, the entry-level jobs, the lower-skill jobs, that's all well and good. But isn't the impact of that going to be to cause those jobs to disappear faster rather than later, sooner rather than later, simply because as the costs go up, there's more and more incentive for the employers to automate, just like I think the fast food drive through and this is what the McDonald's CEO is saying, the fast food drive through of the near future, not tomorrow, not six months from now, but of the next couple of years, is going to look significantly different. 855-616-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is this an, unevent, an unavoidable consequence of, again, raising wages for the, the lower-level workers, namely that those jobs are going to go away faster? And my answer is, yeah, we discuss. 
Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620. Hey, Jeff, I spent 30 years in management. I've often said that people tend only to see one side of the issue. They don't understand that labor is the highest cost a business has. If the wages paid to labor is raised to, say, $15 an hour, it's going to have consequences. One is they're going to see, uh, you're going to see if you were an empl- fewer employees in stores, so service level will suffer. Another is the automation that you're talking about. The third thing that's going to happen is there's going to see increased prices because employers have to offset these costs somehow. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Um, Jeff, I don't think the trajectory or urgency will change just because businesses have to pay more for labor now. It's just inevitable. Well, I see where I disagree with that is, is do I think automation is inevitable? Yes, it, it is. But the speed with which it happens, that that's what the factor is. And the more you artificially raise the cost of labor, the more incentive you have for the business owner to say, okay, well, well maybe it's worth investing at the, the payback period of putting a $5,000 talking kiosk in, that the payoff period goes from four years to a year or whatever that's going to be, maybe I should just go ahead and do it now. Jeff, don't forget there's also robots ready for restaurant use that can flip burgers and deliver trays to fast food dine-in patrons, so even more automation to replace entry-level jobs is just around the corner. Somebody was saying, Jeff, you know, you gave the example of the bank tellers. Think about service stations. I mean, service stations are, are all, I mean, are, are mostly self-service now. If you grew up at a certain time, you didn't pump your own gas. It was all full service. There were attendance. As a matter of fact, I was at dinner the other night with my friend Alan, who was telling me his first job was working at a gas station. He'd run out and he'd pump gas and he'd wipe the windows and he'd check your oil and do all those sorts of things. That was his first job as a kid. Well, nobody does that stuff anymore. It's all... You know, automated. You do the things yourself. You pull in, you put in your credit card, or you go in and you pay for your gas. You pump it yourself. The example of this I also always give is the whole idea of if as somebody who from time to time has bet on horses. Arlington Park, the the racetrack, which is closing after this year, they think. You know, you would go down to that track, and it used to be if you want to make a bet, you'd get in line, you'd go up to the teller, and you'd say, all right, I, $2 on, you know, grew in the fourth, and then they'd write the ticket out. Well, you go down there now, and there's a couple tellers left, but only a couple. Mostly it's machines. You go in, you put your money in, you get a voucher, you go from there. Vincent on the northwest side. Hi, Vincent. Good afternoon, Jeff. I- Automation is inevitable. The fact is, from the beginning of this country, it's always been trying to find a way to to have cheap labor. The fact is, businesses regard the fact is that business has always found cheap labor in this country. And the fact is, is that business in in the eighties that's the reason why they went overseas because they wanted to find cheap labor. And so, so, so automation is just another tool in order to, 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 to in order another tool to keep. Uh, 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 wages down, and so so that that's it's going to be always a part of America. But as wage costs increase, doesn't that give the employers more incentive to find alternatives? Well, it doesn't matter of how much a person makes. The fact is, if you were making a dollar twenty-five an hour, and the fact is, you can bring in a machine to do 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 it for twenty dollars uh, for for twenty dollars uh, for 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 uh, twenty cents an hour. The fact is, it's going to happen. It, it it happened back in the in the fifties, the forties, and yeah. and and everything else. Automation comes in and and it replaces the worker. 
And so it, it's inevitable, and, and it's going to be inevitable uh, for the future. Well, uh, Vincent, I mean, to an extent, but I guess the, the, my point is the the higher, especially if we raise wage rates artificially, and you know, I, mean, I, I hear from some of the usual suspects, and you know who you are, who are saying, well, I mean, it, it's good that the government, for example, is spending, is paying people essentially to stay home because that's going to create a demand that em- employers are now going to have to raise their rates. They're going to have to start paying more because the government is essentially subsidizing people to stay home. Oh, okay. That, that's, that, that's all well and good. And, and yes, I, I concede that, um, at some point in time, automation is, is inevitable. But the more you artificially raise the wage rates, the more you say, okay, now you've got a job that, that it's really, it's worth Let's say for the sake of argument, it's worth 12 bucks an hour. But now because you're competing with the government and the unemployment benefits and stuff, you got to pay 18 bucks an hour. So now you got to pay $6 an hour more per employee per day plus benefits and all those sort of things. My point is you give the employer more incentive to go out and invest in that automation. You make those jobs go away quicker. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I understand. We saw what happened with ATMs and we saw where tellers are, for example, and, and it was a slower process. Process. But if you're going to artificially jack up the wage rates, that gives the employers more incentive. It is going to be interesting to see, you know, what what the world is going to look like in the future. And I think part of that thing is going to be a fewer of the entry level jobs. More of that's going to be taken away by automation, which makes it more important than ever for people, I, I think, to, you know, figure out, you know, what, what they're going to do and, you know, develop a skill that is going to end up being marketable because otherwise, I think the labor costs are just going to price people out of a job. Back with more in just a minute. Well, it was true in 1974. It is true in 2021. If you're conducting investigations, one of the key things you do is follow the money. Remember, that was one of the big lines that came out of Watergate. Well, follow the money. It, it's still applicable, you know, going on 50 years later. Now, we've been talking for the last couple of weeks about how the, these hackers, these Eastern European slash Russian hackers have been breaking into different computer systems over the last couple of years, most notably, most recently, at least that colonial pipeline, the pipeline that transmits, you know, oil and gas from the Gulf up the East Coast. And there was that the hack which caused the temporary shutdown of the pipeline, which caused all sorts of problems. And as it turns out, colonial ended up paying the hackers to essentially help them unlock the, the problems or at least stop hacking into them. They paid them about $4 million in, in Bitcoin, which is kind of the cryptocurrency that was out there. And the reason these hackers use cryptocurrency is because it, it's very difficult to track, or at least they think it's difficult to track, whereas if you're paying cash, I mean, there's a float. You follow the money. Well, interestingly, the story today is how, in this case, they the government was, in fact, able to follow the money. Yesterday, the U.S. Department of Justice said that it had seized much of the ransom that the pipeline operator had paid to the Russian hacking collective. Investigators in recent weeks traced 75 bitcoins worth more than $4 million that had been paid to the hackers. Federal investigators tracked the ransom as it moved through at least 23 different electronic accounts belonging to the hacking group. And then they they found one where it ended up landing. Federal investigators went to a judge who allowed them to break into and seize the money. So they seized... um, 
They seized about 63.7 Bitcoins valued at $2.3 million. The value of the Bitcoin had dropped dramatically over the course of the last couple of weeks. But the bottom line is they, they were able to follow the money. And even though the hackers were confident that by using cryptocurrency, we're, we're, we're not going to have to worry. Nobody's going to track us down. Well, the, the Department of Justice was able to do it. That is a great story. And the message is to people who are victims in the future, don't don't take this on yourself. Go to the authorities and work with the authorities because maybe they can get the money back. Now, if you could catch the hackers, that would make it a real home run. Back with more in just a couple of minutes. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So, Melissa Barkley, um, I was I, I was at an event last night. I, I emceed something for the Mequon Chamber of Commerce, and uh, my wife came with me, and we were we were talking about the discussion that you and I had on on the program yesterday. And my, my wife said she really she really un- she gets you, doesn't it? Being meaning <laughs> you, because you were talking yesterday about how what a big kid I am at heart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's true. I do. I get you. I feel like I get you. Yeah. It's just yeah. and, and and what prompted that, if people weren't listening, is we were talking about big. Big boy restaurants and stuff, and I've just I've been a fan of Big Boy forever. And I tell I've told the story before about how years ago I I, I was I was thinking about buying one of these like nine foot tall <laughs> ceramic Big yeah. Boys that I wanted to put in the house. We lived in Whitefish Bay at the time and uplight it, and that that wasn't going anywhere for the front or the back. But I can't and, imagine that, Jeff. Uh, right, oh. and, and then like a summer before last, I'm at Hamburger Festival in Seymour, and they've got this this perfectly pristine big boy statue that's about like four feet tall and and it's a display thing and i'm trying to buy it and they're they're like well no it's it's for display and i said well i understand that but you know i i you're, you're selling t-shirts tell me how, give me a price on this and of course my wife fran is like looking at me going oh my gosh what if they gave you a price would you really do that but <laughs> yeah. but but it's it's just it's the fun of that and mm-hmm. that's why over the years some of our fans have sent like little big boy statues and bobbleheads and yeah. I've, I've got them i've got one on my desk you know and then sometimes i've got all, I've got big boy stuff all over the house, and I don't know why. It's just it brings us back to you a like simpler it. time. It brings I, you joy. It sparks joy. It, it, <laughs> it brings me joy because at the end of the day, I, I'm just a, a big kid. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I was so excited when we saw this story that broke over the weekend about how big boy, after an almost 25 or 30 year absence, the restaurants are returning to Wisconsin. And right now we are joined on the WTMJ hotline by Chaz Hastings, who's one of the owners of the new Big Boy franchise for Wisconsin. Chaz, hello. Hi, Jeff. All right. Well, I'm geeked about this. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of Big Boys. Tell me, tell me what was your thought process in bringing Big Boy to Wisconsin for the first time in 26 years? Sure, but the first thing I do want to tell you, we have something in common with the Big Boy statues because even before this happened, I had a six-footer at my house and it's been there forever and and now i'm gonna have the world's biggest collection of uh so i hope you can come by sometime to see them all Uh, oh oh yeah trust me i i will be there so okay so the the big boy i guess has never completely gone out of existence it's the corporate headquarters are in, in michigan so you're you're going to have the wisconsin franchise is that what the plan is correct we uh, started talking to the, to Big Boy Corporate probably three, four months ago. We were looking at first to get some of the food trucks. And we just struck up a really good conversation and saw a big opportunity. And then I checked out this Facebook page right here in Milwaukee. It's Milwaukee Remembers Big Boy. And I saw the fanfare is incredible for this. 
Mm-hmm. And my, my partner, Scott Carlton, who's also my uncle, we're both from Michigan, and our whole family has has been huge fans of Big Boy forever. And we saw an opportunity here where we could bring something back to Wisconsin that, that is really loved throughout the state. Now, your first location is going to be in Germantown at, at the location that I think a lot of people know of Jerry's Old Town, which is, of course, a, a, a famous famous restaurant that's been, was in existence for years and years. So you're starting out in Germantown, right? Yes, that'll be our first location. It's going to be a flagship store. Uh, Big Boy Corporate, since we're coming back to the state, has given us a lot of autonomy with this. So it's going to be different than pretty much any other Big Boy out there. We're going to have a retail space, a museum, some social media interactive stuff, all kinds of nostalgic photos. I've I've had a shopping spree on eBay <laughs> to buy Big Boy items, and uh, that'll be our first location Okay, uh, right here. You're, you're also now none of the big boys I went to when I was growing up. That none of them had liquor licenses. But you're going to try to you're going to try to sell alcohol at this place, right? Correct. Uh, you know, we figured with it being Wisconsin and old fashions being so popular, it'd be tough not to enjoy an old fashioned with your big boy burger. Yeah, a beer and a big boy. I, I like that. Okay, now let me ask well, you. He's grown up a little bit. He's 85 years old now, so I think <laughs> it's time that he could. Uh, and vibe a little bit. Chaz, you and I are on the same wavelength. Um, let's, one of the big things, you know, we, we talked about this a little bit yesterday. Sometimes over the years, formulas change, recipes change, things like that. When, when people go to the new, to the, the new really reopened big boy, you know, when it opens next month, and I understand you got some opening events before that, but when, when they go there, are they going to, are you going to recognize, are we going to recognize the menu? Is it going to be similar to what we saw um, 25 years ago. Since Big Boy Corporate understands the, the, the nostalgia here, they're going to let me actually bring back one of the menus from probably about 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. So the design is going to be very reminiscent of the past. But then the items on the menu are going to be all the classics. Our plan is to go with pretty much every classic item that was on there, from the soups, desserts, salads, all the dressings, the sandwiches, of course, the spaghetti, Mm-hmm. You know, we're we're bringing all of it back, and they are going to allow us to keep some of our our famous Jerry's items, like our French onion soup and our ribs. Right. But, but the menu itself will be pretty much what we remember from Big Boy. Now, with consumer, you know, tastes changing, and and some of that, we will have a few items. We'll have a, I'm sure we'll have like a, a vegan Big Boy burger. Sure. Uh, I'd have to do that because my kids are all vegan. Or gluten free, uh, gluten free Big Boy burger, or something like that. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yep. We'll definitely have that, so we can. We can meet the needs of everybody. The, the taste of everybody. The, yeah, well, right, and, and, and that's it. And then also, you're, you're going to have retail space. So I assume you're what you're going to be selling, like T-shirts and bobbleheads and things of the like. Definitely, we'll we'll end up having quite a few items. Uh, Big Boy has also given us some merchandising license that we'll have. Now, everything we do, we'll have to get approved through them. But you know, we'll have the salt and pepper shakers, the bobbleheads, as you said. The banks are very popular. The T-shirts. We'll have earrings. We'll have keychains. We'll have uh, all kinds of cool items. I, th- this did a lot of thought. I mean, obviously, had you been planning this for a while, or was it just a situation where, hey, I've got the opportunity, and and, and now let, let's go make the investment? It was exactly that. It was something that really wasn't even on our radar six months ago, but it came together really quickly for us, and it just seemed like such a natural for me because for for many years I worked for Harley Davidson Motor Company. And then I had a dealership right here in town, Milwaukee, Harley. So I've dealt with a lot of things that had merchandise and then the entertainment and the food and beverage. So it, it just came together so nicely. And, and we felt that with 
again, the autonomy that big boy corporate's giving us that we could really make this thing pop and, and make it so proud for everybody in the state to come see. And, and we've been getting a response from literally from around the U.S. Mm-hmm. I've been getting just inundated with text messages and Facebook messages and calls. And it's, it's just been so positive, and we're so proud to be bringing it back. And as a matter of fact, I think uh, a car club just reached out to me. We'll have the Wednesday night uh, muscle car shows. And I know that was something really big in Wisconsin was a lot of people went on their dates and, and they would go to the big boy restaurants and get one of the shakes or malts and then go outside and look at cars. Uh-huh. And we'll be able to bring that back. Okay, so the the grand opening, the official opening, that's set for mid-July, right? July 14th, yes. July 14th. But before that, I know you, you've got you've got an event coming up June 17th, which is, what, like next week, uh, to celebrate the 85th anniversary of, anniversary of Big Boy. That's right. Uh, next Thursday, 3 p.m., we have two bands that day. We have the Falcons, and we have the Benadon Jamps. We'll have music from 3 to 9. Uh, we have 85-cent Big Boy hamburgers with the purchase of a beverage. We'll have a muscle car show. We have a live appearance by Big Boy, and he's going to make a grand entrance, I can assure you. And then we have a 5.30 press conference, and we'll have some some of the executives from Big Boy coming out from Detroit. And we, we also uh, we put feelers out to a couple uh, you know, politicians and, and people of influence in the Milwaukee, Wisconsin area to see if they could come. That's it. Well, the, the, you know, you got to tell you, you had me at 85 cent big boy double decker hamburgers. I mean, you, you had me right there. Well, look, I, I appreciate uh, you, you taking some time with us, Chaz. Again, I'm, I, I'm a huge fan. I, I love this sort of retro stuff. I never really understood why Big Boy went away 26 years ago, but there's always been this undercurrent and desire, and I think a lot of us were hoping that somebody would, you know, take the initiative and try to bring it back. So I want to tell you, I I know on behalf of our listeners here, we wish you the best of luck, and I know a lot of us are going to be out there checking this out sometime, if not this week, um, when you open in mid-July. I really appreciate it, and trust me, we're going to do our best to make everybody in Wisconsin super proud of this. Great, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. That's uh, we'll we'll talk later. That's that's uh, Chaz Chaz Hastings, who's one of the the people bringing the franchise back. Here's a couple of texts they got while we're talking to him. Jeff, I wish my dad was alive for this. He loved big boy burgers here's another one yippee love big boy bring on the big boy burger and the brawny lad yeah that was kind of on the on the rye roll the big hamburger with the slice of onion and things and that see one of my questions and i'm glad we we had a chance to talk about it I i was curious about what what the menu was was going to be because i mean i think Sometimes what happens is, you know, you bring back the name of the restaurant. I, I was given the example. When I grew up, I when I first started drinking beer, one of my very favorite beers was On Decker beer, which was kind of like the high end beer that Paps made. And I it just they, they monkeyed around with the formula and ultimately it fell out of favor and then they discontinued it. And then Paps brought On Decker back a, a year or two, but it, it wasn't the formula that I remembered. And, and maybe my taste buds had changed, but I don't think so. I just think it was kind of a different formula that I remembered. And it was kind of like, eh, all right, you know, it, it, nothing special. But it was like a different formula. In contrast, the, the Schlitz that they make now, okay, that's that, the Schlitz, the formula they're using is the formula when, when, I, you know, when I was 18 years old.
old in the 19th, in the 70s. I mean, that that's the beer that I was drinking. So I go, oh, this tastes like I remember it. So I'm, I'm hoping that when they bring back Big Boy, again, it's going to be the same sort of menu. It's going to be the same sort of recipes. And we can all kind of take that walk to the into back uh, to the, the past. But at the same time, I also appreciate that, you know, we've we've become more health conscious. You know, you're, you're going to have the vegan alternatives, maybe the gluten free bread if you want, things like that. And so, I mean, you do have to it can't be an exact replica of a big boy in 1980, but the closer they get to it, the better it's going to be. So I certainly wish them a lot of luck. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. I think this was a Goldilocks sentencing. Not too long, not too short, just right. You know, the Goldilocks thing. One's too hot, one's too cold, the other's just right. I'm talking about the sentence that came out this morning in federal court involving the former Grafton pharmacist. Guy's name was Stephen Brandenburg. This is the 46-year-old guy who was a pharmacist at Aurora Medical Center in Grafton. And if, if you will, you've got you've to think back. We have short memories sometimes. You you have to remember when the COVID vaccines first started rolling out, there was a huge shortage. We, we couldn't get them out fast enough. Now we're at a position where anybody who wants a vaccine can get one. But think about over the last six months, how, how much we, we've gone through to get there. And there's been the ongoing discussions about you know who should have gotten them first and how do you prioritize them and things like that. Well, if you will remember last December, this was the guy who, again, a pharmacist at Aurora Medical Center in Grafton, the hospital. And what he did is he decided or tried to intentionally sabotage more than 500 doses of their, their Moderna COVID-19 vaccine. The vaccines were supposed to be kept cold. And, you know, what he did was he removed the vaccines from the refrigerator and, and left them out. And what happened was Aurora discovered this, but not before about 57 people, mostly his co-workers, received vaccinations from this vaccines that that may have, and I say may have, been spoiled. Now, as as it turns out, Moderna says, well, ultimately, their shelf life, if it wasn't, if they weren't out for more than 12 hours, we, we think that they were probably okay, but they're supposed to be kept cold. But you will remember what a huge controversy this was, because at the time, I guess now to an extent, too, but especially back then, lots of people were uncertain. Are these vaccines being rolled out too soon? Is there a danger with this? And then you hear, okay, some of the vaccines, some of the doses have been tampered with. There's somebody that was trying to destroy them. Uh, 500 plus doses at the time, highly valuable, highly sought after, ended up having to be destroyed. 57 people got the shots. And, you know, who knows? Now, now, thankfully, like I say, there was no adverse reactions that I'm aware of. But but it was a very, very big deal at the time. The guy admitted that, yeah, he, he you know, he did it. He um, had become convinced that he, he thinks that the, the vaccines, you know, were, were dangerous to people. And, you know, he was skeptical about them. And then he just decided that he was going to take it upon himself to, uh, I mean, stop people from getting this. Well, it was a big deal at the time. So he ended up getting convicted of a couple counts in federal court of essentially product tampering 
and um, went in front of a federal judge today. He was, you know, looking at perhaps, you know, some some lengthy prison time, although federal sentences are are along these sentencing guidelines. And um, what ended up happening is the judge went to either below the, the guidelines or in the low end of the guidelines and ended up sentencing him to, you know, three years, which I think, you know, given the fact that he could have gotten 10 years, the prosecutors asked for four years. Um, I, I think three years is is about right. He also agreed to pay $84,000 in restitution to advocate Aurora Health, um, and he's going to be on supervision for an extra three years once he gets out of prison. On top of that, I mean, his career as a pharmacist is for all intents and purposes over. I, I think, you know, that this is... This, to me, is an appropriate sort of sentence. The guy had no criminal record. He accepted responsibility, expressed remorse for his actions, and ultimately nobody was hurt because of, you know, his attempted tampering. This would be a whole different story if by allowing the vaccines to spoil and be administered, you had people that had, you know, severe reactions or something. Thankfully, you know, that did not happen in this particular case so there's no injuries but at the same time this is a big deal you have to punish him for what he did and you have to also quote unquote send a message to other people that you can't be tampering with consumer products and you can't be doing these things no matter how well intended you are no matter you even if you are convinced that boy these vaccines are dangerous or whatever it's not for you to destroy to try to contaminate them so i mean i think jail sentence was required and and a three-year jail sentence is not it's not a meager jail sentence i mean he's he's going to be incarcerated for quite a while so on balance i know some people said i'll just give the guy community service or put him on probation i don't think that was sufficient i don't think a 10-year sentence was necessary i think in this case the federal judge pretty much got it right and, and three years seems to me to be about what the penalty should be for what the guy did. Change the facts a little, and I come up with a different situation. Adverse reaction, somebody dies, has a severe injury as a result of this, develops some dread disease. That That's maybe a different dynamic, but that didn't happen. So I think the judge got it right. Three years strikes me as being appropriate. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. If you follow me on, on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. I, I, there, there was an interesting story in the Wall Street Journal today. It's an opinion piece, and it's just an opinion piece, so take it for what it's worth. But it's written by a guy who says that the headline is, Why I Stopped Hiring Ivy League Graduates. And again, this is a, it's a commentary, so again, you take it for what it's worth. But, um, uh, the author essentially says, look, here, here's the, here's the deal. These kids, normally it used to be you you hire these people that came out of these Ivy League schools would be just incredibly in demand because they'd be just just brilliant. I mean, this is the best of the best, and that's what you want to hire. And his premise is, look, here's the problem. Um, 
what what happens is you have these people that are coming from these these fancy schools and the problem is they're 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 being coddled and you know they're they're not being challenged and they're told that you should be offended by you know everything and he said you know th- this is the deal he said i i find that the, these these kids that are coming out of these schools are ill prepared in general to deal with the to, to deal with like the the real world that, that that's out there because they've essentially been coddled all, all along and that whether it's an obsession with being woke or you know even just passively accepting this you get out into the real world and they're not able to deal with it and so he argues I'm I, I'm not hiring them I that that's that is not I don't care how smart they are that is not the type of student that I want now I, I don't know how that all plays out and I don't know whether that's going to be something that you know takes root but it's kind of an interesting theory and an interesting response in the real world to at least some of the the educational teaching that's going on and you can read it and share it for yourself again if you follow me on twitter it's at jeff wagner 620 okay ellie kemper grew you know who ellie kemper is yes i do okay she's the she played on the office she was uh, one of the characters on the office right yeah that's right and she's also um the the other she's in that the TV, she's in this 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 kind of popular TV show that's out there now about uh, unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt that's who she's at she's in there yeah she's in that too so she's very very popular and and again the office has all sorts of fans so you you got that going on there all right she's she has been taken to the woodshed on Twitter over the course of of the last several days see here's the deal. Um, she's now 19. She's in her early 40s. Um, and back when she was 19, she apparently grew up in in St. Louis. And I, I think she grew up as a child of what we will call a child of privilege in, in St. Louis. And back when she was 19 years old, she participated in a, a debutante ball that was held, you know, in, in her hometown. And as frequently happens, I mean, she, she did this at, at the request of her, of her parents, you know, but, but, you know, so she, she grew up, gets out of high school and stuff. And, you know, her, her parents are members of this club, society, whatever, and they have this debutante ball. So, um, 1999, she, it's called the Veiled Prophet Ball, which is an social organization, club, whatever you want to call it, society, etc. And so she participates in this. It's a debutante ball. And um, she was actually, uh, she was named the Queen of Love and Beauty, whatever that is, at, at this ball. And now this occurred back in 1999 when she was uh, 19 years old. And it wasn't a secret thing or anything. I mean, they her picture was in the newspaper. But, I mean, nobody knew who she was. This is one of those things. You look at the society page, and, and you see this all the time. When the journal sent, I don't know, they still do it, but they used to have a society column. And you'd pick it up, and there there would be a reporter that would go around to the different charitable events and charitable balls and debutante balls and all those things. And they'd take pictures, and they you know, write the stories about you know, so-and-so. Oh, you know, that, that, that is, I don't know that it still goes on that much, but it was not that uncommon sort of thing. Well, the, the veiled prophet group has been, you know, controversial, I guess, because apparently the history of this is it was a society of white St. Louis elites 
that were formed in the 1870s and the way this is described as with an eye towards maintaining the social order they deserved. Well, I mean, I think it was just like this. Uh, again, it was a, a group of rich people who were who were white and they, they socialized with e- each other over the years. And I, I'm not sure that you had any black people that were allowed to attend. Certainly, I'm sure not in the beginning. Um, at some point in time, you know, there's been people who said, well, this this is kind of like the equivalent of the Ku Klux Klan, even though nobody's found, you know, any a- any concrete evidence of of that, but it's it's a social society, and you get the idea. It's sort of an exclusive kind of club, and you know she goes to the debutante ball. So the pictures now surface from 1999 that she you know won this particular award, and and Twitter, Twitter goes just absolutely nuts, you know, on this about the fact that you know she's she's there and they describe her again as okay this is the she's the queen of the Ku Klux Klan and things like that i mean here you have somebody look look at this and how terrible this is and you know she's you know participating in this and she's the queen of love and beauty etc 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 so you know th- this all now comes out and she's just being absolutely you know roasted on on twitter and so what she does is she comes out and she issues an apology, I guess. She says that, look, I, I was 19 years old. I was growing up. I was unaware of the organization's past. She says, you know, I, I concede that, you know, ignorance is no excuse. And, and maybe back when I was 19, I, I should have educated myself before getting involved. But I didn't know anything about the history of this. It was a debutante ball. My parents were associated with this. I went ahead and did it. She then goes further and she says, look, I deplore, I denounce, and I reject white supremacism. Um, I acknowledge that my own race and privilege has allowed me to benefit from a system that has dispensed unequal justice and unequal rewards. She says, I believe strongly in the values of kindness, integrity, and inclusiveness. I try to live my life in accordance with these values. I want to apologize to people that I have disappointed, quote, end, end quote. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, now, I think you could have an argument as to whether or not you know, she should have had to apologize in, in the first place. I mean, she's 19 years old. It's not like this is the Ku Klux Klan. But, I mean, I understand it's one of these sort of high society exclusive sort of groups, and it's 20-plus you know plus years ago. But, but, but she has now apologized. She said, look, I'm sorry I should have, even though I was 19 years old, I should have educated myself about this. It's, it's 20, you know, some years later. She says she's sorry. She says she didn't know what this group was all about. She went to the debutante ball, and she won this award. 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Does this put it to rest? I mean, does this... There's a lot of people out there on the Internet who are still outraged. All this means this woman is a white supremacist. Look, you know, look at all these things she did. She did it when she was 19 years old. She was a debutante at this high society ball. It's not like the group was burning crosses or anything like that. But she's acknowledged, look, you know, if if I knew then what I know now, I wouldn't have done it. All right. Is that enough? Should that end this? Is there a statute of limitations on bad behavior, even if you assume that this was bad behavior back in 1999? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. My answer would be yes, 
even if we assume that she did something wrong and and should have said to her parents, no, I'm not going to participate in this debutante ball and I'm not going to be involved with this club that you belong to, even if even if we assume that she should have perhaps done that at the age of 19, it, it's 20-some years later. Can't we move on? 855-616-1620. And my answer would be, I hope we could. We discuss in a moment. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Yeah, the, the the Twitter folks were all upset last week. Ellie Kemper, who is probably best known from her, her role on The Office, but she's in her early forties now. She grew up in, in St. Louis, and her family includes wealthy bankers and prominent business leaders. And her, her family has belonged to this this society, I guess, that's, you know, prominent businessmen uh, belong to it. it. It might, you know, it was founded in the 1800s. And again, it, it was, I, I don't know if it has any black people in it now. It certainly didn't when it started. But she goes and she attends this debutante ball in 1999. She wins this award. And now pictures of her that were in like the society pages of St. Louis newspapers have surfaced. And the Internet is just, oh, my gosh, look, at she's the queen of the Ku Klux Klan and how terrible this is. And, and she has issued now an apology, which to me, I, I think, you know, ends it um, just completely and totally you know, ends it. And I'm not even sure that I think she should have to apologize again for the, the privilege or whatever, but, but she feels that she's going to do it. So she issues an apology. To me, that ends it. I mean, she's 19 years old, even if we assume that this was bad behavior. And I'm, I'm saying that even if we assume it, it's 21 years later. All right. Are, are we really going to go back and look at, oh, there's a picture of what somebody did when they were in college. She went to a debutante ball um, sponsored by an, an organization that her parents belonged to. Oh, this is just absolutely terrible here. You know, we're, we're going to just hold her up and ridicule her. Jeff, um, it was a different time. I'm not apologizing for our history. I believe that we're done with that. And, and again, you got to look at what she did. It's not like she was out there burning crosses on on lawns that she she attended this debutante ball. She won this particular award. She says, look, I didn't know about the history of this organization. Jeff, I have a 36-year-old daughter who barely speaks to her dad because he won't admit that he's a millionaire because of his privilege. Um, he's worked his butts off his whole life, and he deserves what he has. I think these apologies are ridiculous, and I think they are un." warranted. Um, Jeff, as much as I'd like to see Hollywood types uh, hoisted on their own petard, I always love that phrase, hoisted on their own petard, um, the answer should have been, I was 19, it was 20 years ago, pound sand, although the uh, caller doesn't say um, pound sand. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that's it. Um, Jeff, um, this is nothing compared to what some other actors and actresses have done. For example, Ted Danson wearing blackface and have been forgiven. Online mob rule needs to calm down and accept that norms and values have changed since then. Jeff, I think all of these haters need to stop. There's nothing worse than an imperfect person, and we are all hating on others for not being 
perfect. Jeff, how dare her parents be rich and successful? How possibly could she end up sleeping at night? Um, I think that's a fair question as well. Jeff, one of the happiest surprises of adulthood has been learning that I get to learn and grow. I'm not stuck with only knowing what I knew when I was 19. I would hope we can allow others to learn and grow with grace and not continue to hold past actions that have been apologized for against them. I think that's so interesting because... It, it's the self-righteousness that really gets me from time to time about so many of these issues where you've got the people through the anonymity of the Internet who are out there throwing the bricks and stones who who like like pretend that they're sort of perfect people. And I mean, that's always my challenge, especially maybe maybe you are a perfect person and, and that that's great. But I think if for most of us, if not all of us, if you think back to stuff you did, especially once you're of a certain age, if you think back in your 40s to stuff that you did maybe when you were a teenager, you'd look and you'd say, eh, I, I probably, if I knew then what I know now, um, I, I would not have done that. I'm not particularly proud of that or this. And, I, and I'm not talking about committing crimes or things like that. I'm just talking about individual decisions, individual decisions. Maybe, you know, maybe maybe you treated somebody, you know, cruelly in, in retrospect. You didn't necessarily intend it, but you, you kind of look back on what you did and you say, I, I just I would have handled that differently. I'm not proud of that particular moment. Now, maybe you've if, if you look back on your life, maybe you can't say that about anything. But I think most of us, if we look back, there's situations you'd say, boy, I wish I would have handled that differently. I wish maybe I would have gone to this. I wish I would have had a little more grace in dealing with this situation. I wish I would have handled that situation differently. All those different things. And and I guess to have it. You know, and if you are a person that in this case, I mean, okay, so she's a Hollywood actress, so she's out there publicly, and all of a sudden to say, okay, you, you had the audacity to attend this debutante ball at an organization that your parents belong to, and it's 21 years ago, and, and oh, this was so very terrible, and, and now you have to be held accountable, and we have to ridicule you. Um, it just, I guess it's just kind of disappointing to me that it's out there. Jeff, have some grace. People are so desperate to find various issues. They, they um, shout at noises in the dark. Um, yes, Jeff, I have never realized so many people have lived absolutely perfect lives that they can keep going after other people for their past. Well, especially, like I say, stuff that's, it's, it's not like she killed somebody. All right. It's it's just it's a it's a benign sort of thing. She went to a she went to a debutante ball. I mean, you you have to also have this sort of perspective. I don't think she should have had to apologize for this. She obviously felt the need to do that, so she did, and that's that's all well and good. Don't fault that. Nobody held a gun to her head and forced her to do it. I'm going to assume her apology was sincere, even though I don't necessarily believe it was necessary. But she's made the decision to apologize for this. Time to move on. Nothing to see here. There needs to be a statute of limitations on bad behavior, even if we judge people, stuff people did 20 or 30 years ago based on 2021 standards. Doesn't there? Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. My response to this issue would be two words. Heck no. All right. Melissa, before you leave, here's the number. You know what this number is? $93,085. That is the amount that Aaron Rodgers gets fined. 
Or, yes. Could fine. be fine. Could Abso- be fine. Yeah. <clears throat> Absolutely. See, look at the big brain on Melissa. That <laughs> Okay, so right, so th- this is th- this is how it works. Um up until now, in this part of the off season, the Packers have had voluntary workouts. You you have not had to show up. Um but in some cases, by, by showing up, you would get workout bonuses. For example, Aaron Rodgers, by, by not showing up at some of these preseason things, has forfeited about half a million dollars. Half a million dollars just by not showing up. But that's okay. That That's the decision that you end up making. And the Packers can't find you because it's a voluntary sort of thing. This, th- this mini camp that they have going on now is the one mandatory activity on the NFL's off-season schedule. So you're supposed to be there. And if you're not there, the team can fine you. First day you miss 15,500 bucks, second day 31 grand, third day 46,500, so you add it all together $93,085. Now, it it's not it's not mandatory that you be fined. But if you if you do, for example, the, the team could say, OK, you're not here. We're, we're going to treat this as an ex- quote unquote, an excused absence. You know, we, you don't have to be here. So they, they don't have to impose the fine, but they can. Once training camp starts in July, it's like 50 grand a day. And under the collective bargain agreement, there's there's no choice. You, you have to be fined. So Aaron Rodgers is not in Green Bay. It is not an excused absence. I mean, it's not like he went to him and said, ah, I've got this stuff coming up or whatever. He, he's just he's no showed. And, you know, they, they know he, he's, he's no showed. So he's not there. They do not have to find him. And I guess they could just simply say that even though they haven't excused him, they could just pretend that they have and said, OK, well, even though you know we haven't given him the excuse, we're going to pretend we have and we're going to treat this as an unexcused absence and we're going to forget about it. So, you know, we're, we're not going to find him the ninety three thousand dollars, even though we would probably find any other player who pulled the same stunt. We'd find them. But, you know, we're not going to find Aaron Rodgers. That, that, that's a decision they can make. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. Here is the reality. Aaron Rodgers has. Uh, we've talked about this before. He, he's he wants out of Green Bay for you know what, whatever sort of reasons. He is required under the collective bargain agreement to be in Green Bay today. He he has decided to skip it. As such, he is eligible to be fined. The Packers don't have to do it, but the question is, should they? Should they, or alternatively, should they waive the fines? If you ask me, should they fine him? My answer is heck yes. He, he's not where he is supposed to be. It is not an excused absence. And if you don't fine him for doing this, how do you find the next guy? I mean, if, if you've got another player that's required to be there and, and they do the same thing, they, they blow it off. And I am assuming for the sake of argument that Rogers didn't call up and talk to the general manager and say, Hey, can I get an excused absence? He, he just no showed it. So assuming that that is in fact the case, how, if, how can you not find Aaron Rodgers and then turn around and find somebody else who decides that they're going to no-show. If you don't find him, haven't you set the precedent that, okay, this mandatory workout thing, well, we, we don't really mean mandatory. 855-616-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Now, the argument would be, well, we want to keep Aaron Rodgers happy. We, we, we want him to rethink his commitment to the Packers. We want him to come back. We want everything to be all sweetness and light. And so if we find him 93 grand 
all we're going to do is we're going to upset him further. Really? 855-616-1620. That's the AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, actions have consequences. And if you're supposed to be somewhere and you decide that you're not going to be there, that's a decision that you make. But there are consequences for that. Also, I mean, Aaron Rodgers, he, he failed to show up for these optional things, cost himself half a million dollars. It's not like an extra ninety-three grand is going to make much difference to him. But I think for the integrity of the organization, yes, I think you have to go ahead and find him. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What do you think? Matthew. Matthew, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. What do you I, think? I think, of course, of course you find him and you do it for the same reasons that you've done most of your other decision-making. Everything that you hear coming from Green Bay management has been, it's about the team. We're we're doing this team, you know, with with team-centric thinking, and you can't, you know, you can't make exceptions. And I, I think the other aspect that you have to think about is this amount that they're finding is a drop in the bucket compared to what he chose to not pick up, which was just showing up for uh, the The workouts. Yeah. Yeah. The workouts, which I mean, he chose not to do that. This money in relative sense compared to what his contract is compared to what it's rumored that they, they were willing to pay him is nothing. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, thanks. I mean, right. No, I agree. Thanks. I mean, I know this sounds it sounds crazy to say this, but you know, ninety one grand to Aaron Rodgers is probably like five bucks to you or me, and, and maybe not even that. And you're exactly right, Matthew. He walked away by by not showing up for the voluntary stuff. He walks away from half a million bucks. So, okay, what, what's a ninety one thousand dollar fine? But I do think that there, you know, you you are. If you start making exceptions, if you say, okay, we're going to have the Aaron Rodgers rule and we're going to treat Aaron Rodgers, who, in my opinion, is behaving like a spoiled child, we're going to treat him differently than we treat all these other players. Well, uh, you're just you're just opening yourself up to, you know, mutiny. Uh, okay, 855-616. Jeff, Aaron Rodgers is under contract. Therefore, he's expected to live up to his obligations. They need to fine him and hold him to... The contract. I agree. Uh, Jeff, he needs to grow up, and I agree. I think he should be fined. Jeff, they should find him as much as possible. Many celebrities who once seemed too big to fail have gone broke, like MC Hammer. Um, I think he deserves the fine. Jeff, um, fine Aaron Rodgers. Um, what, Jeff, fine Aaron Rodgers. What it does it do for the morale if the, the teammates? Um, yeah. Jeff, I mean, trade him. You know, and then I, look, I, I've already made that argument. I mean, I think that ev- sometimes, sometimes like relationships, like marriages, they, they get irretrievably broken, and and you can, you can put blame on on you know who's responsible or whatever. I've been arguing all along that if you can get market value or better, what you should be doing is that you you should in fact be be trading him because a disgruntled Aaron Rodgers gets you nowhere. Um, so that's always been the position I've been arguing. But regardless, you're 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 under contract. You are expected to live up to the terms of that, Jeff. You you find him and then you get rid of him. Um, yeah. Um, Jeff, wake up, people. This is what happens nowadays. People control things nowadays. Well, 
um, okay, maybe this is the way of the team asserting some something more. Jeff, I would find him to the full extent. I am sick of him calling all the shots. Aaron needs to honor the contracts. The end, The odds of him having an MVP season again is unlikely. Well, I think that's the case. Jeff, Roger should be definitely fine since he chose not to be part of the team training going on. He has a job to do, and he isn't following through with his responsibilities. He's setting a poor example to his teammates. All players need to be treated equally. That's what Heather has to say. Well, that that that's the... I mean, that that is the concern. Now, again, I also, I, I don't get the idea, and maybe there's something out there, and maybe there were some secret phone calls back and forth, and everything's lovey-dovey, and they're like, oh, Aaron, that, that's fine. You know, you know the offense to tell you what. You stay away. You hang out in Hawaii, and then, you know, we'll see you in a couple weeks. And maybe that dialogue is going on, but I don't think so. I don't think anybody does. This is a guy who just decided that he was going to no-show, and if you're the Packers organization, you, you cannot. You cannot tolerate that, at least I don't think. Jeff, I disagree with you. I, I think he is the precedent, um, meaning, okay, he's so special that he, deserve, he deserves to be treated differently. And, and that's what the Packers are going to have to grapple with. The question that they have to face is, is there somebody, right, great player at the end of his career, arguably, great player, but, I mean, do you have two sets of rules? Do you have the Jordan rules? Do you have the Rodgers rules that we're going to treat him differently than the other, what are there, 90 people in the roster right now, than the other 90 people or 89 people that are on the roster? Um, Jeff, heck yes, bill him. Get with the real world. Tell him to work 365 days a week like a a farmer. Um, yes, Jeff, I've never heard it from Aaron Rodgers' mouth that he wants out of Green Bay. Okay, well, okay, well, where has he been in the optional training things? Did you watch the ESPN interview there? Um, yes, maybe, maybe it's all sweet and light in Green Bay, but if you really believe that, I, I tell you to kind of duck your shoulder when you fall off the turnip truck so you don't hurt yourself. So they're going to have to decide. Aaron Rodgers, such a positive role model for our youth, not, yeah, it, it is amazing to me, and I've said this before that, um, how quickly, you know, Aaron Rodgers spent all these different, all these years building up this, this, this reputation and the, 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 the true love of the fans. And one of the things, regardless of whether he comes back or not, he's never going to be viewed by Green Bay fans in the same light. He's just never going to do it. And maybe he doesn't care. I mean, I understand he's playing to a broader market and things like that. And I'm not saying that, you know, you, things, you know, five years after he's retired, they might not bring him back and have a ceremony. But he's never going to be viewed the same way by Packers fans. And maybe that doesn't matter to him. But, man, I'm telling you, it just does go to show how things can change in a very, very brief period of time. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. One of our texters says, "Well, Jeff, you're you're not you're not right. I mean, you remember Brett Favre? I mean, there was all the Favre hatred, you know, and 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 yet, you know, Favre has now been welcomed back as part of the Packers family. Yes and no, and it's just Favre was different. And I, I understand that some people forget this, but I was doing this radio show back then. The Favre situation was Favre wanted to continue to play for the Packers. The Packers thought Favre was re- should retire." 
the Packers forced him out to make room for Aaron Rodgers. And yes, you know, he went on to play for the New York Jets and the Minnesota Vikings. And yes, there was, was bad feelings. I understand that. But it was a different deal. And I can remember, you know, we would take phone calls on this back, you know, when that happened 16 or 17 years ago. And I would say the calls, I mean, I would say the audience input was about 50-50. Oh, they should let Brett, they shouldn't force Brett out. He's, you know, et cetera. I don't think there was anywhere near as much bad blood as there is here. Because I will tell you, I mean, I, I find people, I guess, who say they should give Aaron Rodgers whatever he wants and let him be the general manager and we got to do everything we can to keep Aaron. But I would say that that's one out of 20. I would seriously say that is one out of 20. It's mu- I think it's a much different situation. Now, you know, again, after Aaron Rodgers retires, the guy's had a great career, three-time MVP, even assuming he never takes another snap for the Green Bay Packers again. Yes, I think there is a time where the Packers bring him back and they unveil, they put the number 12 up in the ring of honor. But I, I don't believe he's ever going to be treated the same way because I, I think – Yes, fans are going to remember the great accomplishments, but they're going to remember the way it ended. And it's ending badly because Rodgers is causing it to end badly. And so, I mean, I, I, yeah, I understand there's the Brett Favre precedent that is out there, but I think Favre was different. I also think Favre is a different personality than Aaron Rodgers is as well. Aaron Rodgers is going to go down as one of the greatest, if not the greatest quarterback to ever play for the Green Bay Packers, but he's not going to be, he's not going to be the most beloved quarterback ever to play for the Green Bay Packers. Okay, when we come back, we're going to find out what's on tap for Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Please stick around.